Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history themed season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Classical. What does that even mean? Are we talking about Greeks and Romans or just old piano music? Well, yeah. We're going to talk about all of that, but mainly Greeks and Romans. This is What Does Classical Mean Anyway? All right, so welcome back. This is uh, episode two of our art history themed season three. And today we're going to talk about the classical era. And given the fact that we have so many micro genres for things nowadays where, you know, you're listening to music and people will be like, that's not house, that's jungle. And it's like, no, it's all electronica. And it's like, whatever. And then they'll <laughs> say classical to refer to like 700 years or 2000 years or something of music and art. And it's like, well... I don't know that classical right. is a terribly helpful designation right. for such a large chunk, but nonetheless, that's what we're left with. So today we're going to talk about the classical era, and we're going to really divide it into two uh, classical eras, because you have the classical age, which is like Greco-Roman, and then you have the rebirth or renaissance of those classical ideals in the renaissance. Exactly. And so we're going to talk about both of those things, but I guess... What's the difference between classical and uh, classic? Well, Michael, I think you should answer that. <laughs> Michael, um, what well, is the difference between classic and classical? Well, they're related, obviously. They're they are. very similar words. They kind of build off each other. They do. But, you know, like when you think about classic, you're thinking about the original. Um, like classic Coca-Cola, you know, Coca-Cola classic or whatever. It's like the original formula. They did that horrible thing where they changed the formula. What was that in the 90s? Sure. That was the worst. <laughs> they were like, we need to make this taste more like Pepsi. It's like, no, we drink no, Coke because we're not classic. drinking Pepsi. And like, okay. And then they came back with their original formula and they called it Coca-Cola classic. So the word classic really has to do with this original idea. Like what is the original? What is the formative? What is the uh, Foundation. foundational, right? And uh, classical has to do with that period of history that we think is foundational or formative, especially when it comes to the arts. And, I mean, you can go before then if you want. We're not going to. But you can go far before the classical era, and you can find art that's being made and, you know, literature and poetry especially and music. And there's not as much of it that survives, which is one of the reasons why we don't have as much uh, to, to say about it. Um, but there's also a very strange explosion of art that happened in the Greek time. Different areas in Greece, different areas that were, that were not in conversation or connection with one another spontaneously 
created a lot of the roots of classical philosophy and art. And what's odd is that this is around the time when you have the desolation of the temple. Uh, the, the, and you wonder, I wonder anyway, I sometimes wonder, whether or not the, um, the, the kind of forsakenness of the earth at that time in terms of the presence of God did result in people trying to figure things out for themselves. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's speculation. But it is really interesting that at the same time when you have God deserting his temple, you have all of a sudden Greeks and, uh, and this whole area right. over in, in Asia all of a sudden <clears throat> starting, starting to try to, to figure out how to make sense of the world without God. Mm-hmm. Because really that's what Greek and Roman philosophy is all about. Philosophy, in a sense, could be defined as trying to make sense of the world without religion. And even though they have religion, they have mythos, they have, you know, gods or whatever, those gods are really made in the image of people. Exactly. And in some ways, they're representative of the values and the ideas of the people that they represented. They're not, they're not really transcendent in the way that, the, that Yahweh is. So if Greco-Roman art is really, especially for Western society, original or, the, you know, it's sort of the foundation that we draw from. It's the beginning of the conversation, if you will, if we're talking about so art history as a what dialogue. what is the beginning? What is it? Yeah, exactly. Is yeah. yeah. So Greco-Roman or Greek and Roman art is, it is the greatest of classical art. Um, of course, we see this geographically in regions of Greece and Italy and surrounding regions. Uh, Greco-Roman art predominantly is sculpture and architecture. Um, And, of course, you have poetry and writings built on that. But the Greco-Romans, you know, by and large, were really concerned with um, humanity. They were concerned with humanity's relationship to gods. Um, They were concerned with humanity's relationship to each other. And... We see a lot of mythology in their work. We see politics. We see um, other, you know, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, pagan stories. Um, They were honoring all of these things in their art and architecture. Uh, Oftentimes their sculptures were um, were, uh, representations of gods that they worshipped. You would have seen structures like many know the Parthenon, in Greece, was built for these sculptures to to live, basically, for people to come and to worship. They thought that was pleasing to the gods. So yeah, so these were kind of some of the subject matter they were working with. On top of that, uh, Greco-Roman art was highly concerned with order um, and ideal. And what, what do I mean by that? By order, I mean um, things were, in their eyes, probably things were as they were supposed to be. There was symmetry in their art. Things were very proportional. Things were balanced. Um, Things were natural. So a sculpture was, the way it was sculpted was very, it looked natural. It looked like a real human. Um, And and the way it turned or in the way it, um, you know, its hand rested or what have you. Uh, They cared about order. They cared about things being how they thought things were supposed to be. Um, And for that, they they thought things were to be ideal. Things were to be perfect and beautiful. And so that symmetry, that balance, um, emphasis on muscle, emphasis on um, height, 
and the width of a body in a sculpture. That was to them, they had a canon of what was beautiful. Um, we see sculptures like Doriferous, very popular. Um, and he, he is said to be the perfection of male. He represents the male proportions that are, in their opinions, what is to be, how God would desire it to be, how the gods would desire it to be. Um, and it's not necessarily exactly the same as what you might see in nature. It's an idealized exactly. form, which really roots But familiar back. with familiar, nature. Right. It's no, familiar, you look at it. but it's idealized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in some ways, then, the art of the Greeks and the Romans was attempting to transcend the, the forms that we had available to us that, in some sense, they considered corrupt – Right. to these sort of transcendent, eternal, spiritual ideals that even the gods appealed to. Exactly. So, and it's really interesting um, that, you know, one of the questions that Plato asked, because almost all of this stuff goes back to Plato uh, and Aristotle, but especially in these terms, it goes back to Plato and this idea of where uh, truth and beauty and goodness actually come from. Now, as Christians, we would say that truth and beauty and goodness are in some sense revealed from God, and they are expressions of his character, which means that his character is the highest, and the ideals are under his character. They are derivative from his character. The Greeks sort of, I, I mean, they had the question. One of the questions that Plato asked was, does God say something is good because it's good, or is it good because he says so? Hmm. And and that question is actually a really important Absolutely. question. Absolutely, yeah. it's like, are the in in some sense what Plato is asking is is God subject to the absolutes that he says are good? Does is he looking at something outside himself and saying that's good and and it's good not because I say so, but because in some sense it's above me, right. like it is it is truer than I right. am. And the gods of the Greeks, obviously, were not in themselves the expressions of good. Right. They themselves were expressions of a goodness higher than them. Right. Right. And so uh, with their art, they attempted to transcend even the gods and get to these original ideal forms, mm -hmm. the perfect truth, the perfect goodness, and the perfect beauty from which all good, true, and beautiful things flow. Right. You can see that in uh, Greco-Roman art and architecture, especially with their emphasis on symmetry and mathematical perfection. Absolutely. And um, like so much of it is oriented around geometry. Mm -hmm. And even in their philosophy, the philosophy is very ordered and very logical yes. and very symmetrical. Yes. And so um, what ended up happening was that influenced the Romans, yeah. who when they took over the Greek Empire basically adopted all of the mm -hmm. ideas, even the religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they renamed all the gods, but they kept them. You know, Zeus right. became Jupiter. Right. The Romans then adopted a lot of those same ideals. Exactly. Christianity destroyed Rome, yes. not violently, right? But <laughs> through through the superiority of its um, really of its way of life, mm -hmm. um, and showed Rome to be corrupt and. Mm -hmm. um, and it fell apart. It, like, just decayed apart. Yeah. Um, and then you have, because of that decay, the loss of Greco-Roman ideals yep. for a period of time. Yep. Um, but then something interesting happened in the – at the very end of the Middle Ages medieval time, 
you had a resurgence of Greco-Roman classical ideas, and then you have the Renaissance. Right. And with the Renaissance, which really just means rebirth, you have almost a wholesale return to Greco-Roman art and philosophy. Exactly. So you have not Platonism, but now Neoplatonism. Right. 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 And you have this same emphasis on three-dimensional sculpture and architecture and all this other kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, we're looking... We're looking at the rebirth of right. Greco-Roman art and philosophy. Right. right. Well, and, and I think to add a little bit more context, where were they that caused them to rebirth? And so when we had um, Constantine decreeing Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, um, you know, we start to see this transition from Greco-Roman pagan religion um, into what w- most people would know as Byzantine art. Um, it is it is more Christian art, and um, the Byzantine Empire uh, was Christian Greek art in Eastern Roman Empire, and so the Byzantine art was kind of transitioning away from um, this idealized, perfectionistic, godlike tendency of the Greco Romans and the worship of those things into um, a more, they were, they were far more concerned with just the spiritual nature of humanity and far less concerned with things being very real looking um, right. and natural. And so you commonly, you, you know, Byzantine art is very popular for their iconography, their mosaic iconography. Um, and you look at this art and it's disproportional, that honestly, they look weird. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just looks flat. They're very flat. The proportions are off. Um, you have tiny, like little baby Jesus, but his face looks like a matured man. You know, it's just weird. Mm-hmm. And um, but the Byzantines weren't concerned with that. It was far more abstracted, and and that was fine to them because they were concerned with the spirituality. They were concerned with the supernatural that was exuding from their art. Well, and that means that they were actually concerned that you look through their art exactly. to something else exactly. rather than having the art itself be an object right. that it's like a terminal object right. of attention right. with Greco-Roman art. Right. And, and Byzantine art was far more symbolic. Mm-hmm. Um, they even believed that their iconography was you standing in the presence of that icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the worship of, you know, we see iconoclasm, you know, this breakout against the worship of icons. And we're going to come back to that in Baroque era um, with the Reformation and whatnot. But but really, the Byzantine art was kind of this breaking away of Greco-Roman, and the Renaissance was a breaking away of Byzantine going back to the practices of Greco-Roman. It was a rebirth of those philosophies and ideologies. And oddly, you can see that there's a religious history that's connected to that because you're starting to see the failure of the church in its capacity as a cultural, political, and societal director. Right. And so leading up to the Reformation era and this break, you have this movement toward we no longer can rely on the church as an authority in these things. And it's almost a similar thing where it's like Ichabod, 
right? So like the glory has departed. We can't trust that God is speaking to us through the church anymore. Oh, we have to figure things out for ourselves right. without religion. Turning back to man. Right. So if we're turning back to man for answers, who did this better? Well, we're looking back, we see Byzantine. Okay, no, 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 no. Greek Roman. Yep, there we yeah, go. That there we they go. were doing it. <laughs> let's pick let's pick that thread up again. And really, that's what you have in the Renaissance yeah. is a picking back up of that thread. It is, exactly. So why did you answer the question, why did they return to classical forms? I mean, the Renaissance was a resurgence of classical art. They were, again, concerned with the ideal, perfect proportions, symmetry, um, the natural contorting of, a, of the body, which artistically, that's called contrapposto. Mm -hmm. You know, if you imagine yourself standing and you're resting on one hip and your body kind of leans, you know, the opposite direction. That's that's contrapposto. They wanted peop they wanted to show that in their sculpture, um, the natural way humans move. Um, they wanted it to be real. We see a lot of um, religious stories in the Renaissance, predominantly Christian, but again, we see a resurgence of mythological stories. And um, and I think to dive in a little bit to Renaissance intellectually. Uh, it would be important to talk a bit more about Neoplatonism. I want to introduce you to Dr. Sachs. Uh, he was one of my professors of art history um, in college. He teaches in Kennesaw at Kennesaw State University, and he's going to dive a little bit more into Neoplatonism, which is really important if we are to understand the Renaissance. So um, let's hear from Dr. Sachs. Something happened in the circle of one of the Renaissance's greatest patrons, Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici. He gathered all the greatest minds in Florence around him. And one of those men was a man named Marsilio Ficino, who was charged by de Medici to translate Plato's philosophy into Latin from Greek. Because Lorenzo might have been very educated, he couldn't read Greek, so he could read Latin. So while Ficino was translating Plato, he, um, he stumbled across many similarities between Plato's philosophy and Christian philosophy. And so he uh, reincarnated something that had lived and died kind of a sad death in the Middle Ages called Neoplatonism, New Platonic philosophy. And what he realized was that um, you could take Greek forms, even if it's forms of ideas or words even, but especially art, and you could use that as the vehicle for expressing Christian ideas. So Neoplatonism became the philosophy of, of Lorenzo de' Medici's circle of artists and philosophers. And um, one of his charges, one of his wards, was a young 13-year-old named Michelangelo. And he grew up on Neoplatonism. So everything Michelangelo did in his art was Neoplatonic. And what that means is you find the ideal vessel for the perfect idea. To Michelangelo, it was Greek beauty to house Christian ideas. Right. So it's really massively important to understand uh, what Neoplatonism is. It still has a lot of impact, actually, even now. And, but it was especially important at this time. Um, again, another little element of history is that the Christians had largely abandoned Plato and Aristotle up until this time and had not really preserved their manuscripts. And a lot of the manuscripts that they finally found, <laughs> weirdly enough... Um, for Plato and Aristotle in uh, the Renaissance era were from the golden age of Islam. 
So during the Crusades, one of the things that happened as a result of the Crusades is that some of the intellectual and literary history and uh, legacy of Islamic uh, academia was preserved and then transferred over, kind of cross-pollinated into the European countries that were, you know, invading Israel, etc. Um, and so the Crusades have this, has a lot of weird repercussions, but this is one of them. The Crusades might actually be di directly responsible for the resurgence of Greco-Roman ideas in the Renaissance. Um, because they started to find these manuscripts and read them and be like, ooh, look at this. Th here's a guy who's explaining how the world works without recourse to religion, merely on the basis of reason and on human, humanly understandable ideas. And so there was this resurgence of humanism, which when you, we think about humanism, you're oftentimes thinking secular humanism, and you're thinking of it as like this radically anti-Christian idea. But really, it doesn't mean much more than just an attempt to understand things from the perspective of a human being. How do human beings understand the world? So oftentimes, humanists might say, we don't need religion, but some humanists would say religion is actually part of the way that humans understand the world. And so mm -hmm. you have religious humanism as well. Anyway, it can be very confusing, <laughs> but when we use the term humanism, we tend to be talking about this idea of that the Greco-Romans started, which is that humans, they are the foundational idea of how you understand the world. Right. So like, if you want to understand the world, you have to understand it as a human, if you are human, and so everything that can be understood should be put in terms of humans, right? And so you have this, in the Renaissance, you have a recovery of uh, an emphasis on human learning, mm -hmm. on uh, the academy and the university as a source of truth and as a legitimate authority, um, which is very different because the academies and the university systems up until that time were largely controlled by the church and they were run by churchmen and they were, you know, they, they taught church people. And now you start to have secular universities or universities that are disconnected from the church and start, and you start to have people trying to understand the world through purely human means. And Neoplatonism then becomes really important because it gives you a way of understanding the world that is not directly related to religion. And so how, how is that the case? Well, basically, it, Neoplatonism, just like Platonism, <laughs> you know, it's very <laughs> New similar. Platonism. New Platonism. Uh, is saying that there are ideals that are beyond the world that are manifested in the world in material ways. But through uh, study and through per the, the pursuit of perfection, you can actually climb out of the corruption of this material and corrupt world into the sublime upper reaches of transcendent ideals. And so, in some ways, the Renaissance program was a program of pulling humanity out of the superstitious morass of this physical objective uh, world that we're in and actually pulling them up into this higher and more ideal world of reason. So we talk about li life imitating art, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's really what yeah. happened in, in, within the Renaissance is like, we're going to give you art that your life can imitate. So like you can look at this statue, and this is the ideal man. Right. This is this is the standard 
that you can all aspire to. Exactly. Exactly. And, and on top of that, you know, the Renaissance is a rebirth of Greco-Roman art and philosophy, and it's also progressive. I mean, we see multiple developments artistically, and, you know, I'm going to kind of talk more to the artists out here, but we see a, a lot of value um, in technique in the Renaissance. Um, it was the foundation, the Renaissance is built on the foundation of classical antiquity um, in art, architecture, decoration, and they are progressive politically, educationally, medically, um, and especially artistically. We see a lot of important techniques that arrive in the Renaissance, and for artists it's important for you to know about these. Um, we see things for the first time like linear perspective. Um, this is kind of, uh, it's, an, it's an illusion. It's as if you're looking through a window. You're looking at a painting, and it's like you're looking through a window into a whole new world. Things are perspectively as they should be, how our eye sees things. And, an, and artists are bringing this, the, the dimension of our sight into painting. Um, linear perspective, it's a huge um, it's a huge value to the Renaissance, and it will be from here on out. Mm -hmm. It's important to know about it, where it started. We see foreshortening. Um, it's it's the illusion of depth in works of art. We see sfumato. Uh, this is a term coined by Leonardo da Vinci, which basically is, um, it kind of means smoky. You know, you, you see in works of art, and specifically in paintings, this smoky atmosphere. It, it feels sacred. It feels holy. It's... Um, it's a drawing you in. It's kind of mysterious. And is it focusing your attention by obscuring certain elements as well? Yes. Yeah, so it blurs and softens outlines um, in the work. So it does. It creates this faded, smoky atmosphere, a tone. Um, we see chiaroscuro. This is a pretty common term for um, artists probably, but that's just the contrast between light and dark. That's crucial in artwork. Um, mm -hmm. light, the contrast between light and dark creates a lot of emotion. Um, we see this in the Renaissance. We see a lot of balance common for Greco-Roman art, but we see a continuation of it. And we see a lot of triangular figures um, in the Renaissance, which creates a nice balance. And it's also symbolic of the Trinity. Um, you're going to see figures predominantly in the center of the painting, and they're going to be balanced on both sides. They like um, balanced compositions. Um, and on top of that, we see, you know, in, in the Renaissance, far more patrons in, in art. Um, the church is commissioning art. Wealthy people, aristocrats, they're all commissioning art. And oftentimes you're going to see them in art. You know, in, in a lot of triptychs in the Renaissance, you see the patrons who commission their art. They want to be known that they commission this art, that they have wealth, that they have education, and they are to be honored, and they have they are involved in the culture, and um, and so we see a huge, even just a growing of um, people involved in the arts, putting money into the arts, and by and large, the the biggest patron is the church. Um, it's the Pope in the Renaissance who's commissioning artworks for the church. And so, or for himself, or for himself, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because he has the money to exactly. It. it seems then that there's actually a slight shift, even though it is a return to the Greco Roman starting point. Right. It seems like they quickly 
moved beyond the Greco-Roman They exceeded it. Point. Right. Yeah. That they almost perfected mm-hmm. that and then moved beyond it. Right. Um, because even what you're talking about with the with the obscuring of certain elements or foreshortening or linear perspective right. or any of these things, the the illusion aspect of that has more to do with like human phenomenology. Like right. this is how we see things. Right. So there's a naturalism and a realism there yes. that would have been foreign to Greco-Roman exactly. art. Because they would have been like, no, it doesn't matter how you see it. Right. It matters how it is. Right. In eternity or like in the right. eternal space. Right. And so you do see already a movement away from that kind of transcendent ideal to more of a naturalist, realist, strictly earthly human perspective. Right. And they are perfecting the techniques, but in some ways they've taken the techniques and they're shifting the trajectory of the ideology or the philosophy of those techniques. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think um, I'll let you talk about this, Michael, but we do see human convention in the Renaissance. Can you explain to our audience what convention means? And Yeah, we're going to talk about convention a good bit because convention is most literally a way in which something is usually done. And we t- talked about this a little bit in our first episode. When we look at art, there is a convention, and most art, and we'll talk about this over and over again, is in relationship to convention. It's in relationship to the conventions it has inherited. So in some ways, even though the Renaissance is in relationship to Greco-Roman art and the conventions of Greco-Roman art, and transferred and translocated and transposed some of those uh, techniques, it's also in direct contradiction in some ex- to some extent to Byzantine art. Right. And so that is also a convention right. that Renaissance art is in dialogue with. And it's saying, you guys are flat, you guys are abstract, you guys are symbolic. We're going to be deep. You know, we're going to have linear perspective. We're going to try to paint and sculpt things naturally. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be so interested in the ideals like the Greco-Romans or in the ideals like the Byzantines. We're trying to get back to life as it really is. Right. And you can see... That had profound influence right. on the culture. Right. Well, like, and those conventions are going to be carried out in the Baroque era into Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, modern, modern art, ism. contemporary. We're I mean, still we're dealing still with those conventions. We're still using linear perspective. <laughs> right. We're still using chiaroscuro. Mm-hmm. It is the contrast of light and dark. Every artist is using contrast of light and dark and mm-hmm. paint and color. Um, so this is where it starts. And these conventions continued. So, and you can you can basically understand one of the broad stroke ways that you can understand a movement in art is by trying to understand what is its relationship to convention. Right. Um, and what I mean by that is, how does it respond to the conventions that is it has inherited? Is it slavish to those conventions? Or is it rebellious toward those conventions? Or is it extra conventional? Is it trying to chart a new path of right. different conventions, right? right? But in, in any way, like just thinking about what are the conventions that this artist inherited and how did he respond to those conventions is a really fruitful way to understand their art and how it fits into art, uh, into the course of art, the stream of art right. over time. Right. So let's talk about one artist then who really was uh, greatly innovative and probably developed a huge number of the conventions that Absolutely. later artists were dealing with. And that is Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Uh, <laughs> not the Teenage Mutant Ninja no. Turtle, I imagine. <laughs> uh, but we are uh, 
so tell us a little bit, give us a, a little brief bio of Michelangelo and maybe how he's representative of the classical or Renaissance aesthetic or philosophy. Yeah. So Michelangelo uh, was born in Florence. He is an Italian man. He was truly a Renaissance man. He did all of the things. He was a sculptor. He was a painter. He was an architect. He was a poet. Some of his poetry is some of my all-time favorite poetry. I'll I'll quote some of it towards the end of the intro probably, but um, Michelangelo uh, was an artist in in Italy, predominantly in Florence. He worked some um, in surrounding regions, of course, in Rome, but uh, by and large, the Pope commissioned him. Uh, the Medici family, I'm sure that might be a fam- familiar name to some people, the Medici family practically ruled Florence. They were the bankers of Florence, um, indeed the wealthiest of Florence. And they had a huge influence on the arts. Um, by and large, with the Pope controlled the arts, controlled society, and um, and and through the arts. And Michelangelo worked with them. Uh, the bulk of Michelangelo's work usually is Christian. Uh, we see the statue of David. Um, we see the Sistine Chapel. You know, it's these are some of his most famous. The Pieta and Saint Peter's Basilica. Uh, the bulk of his work is Christian, so that's somewhat different than the Greco-Roman um, in that they're particularly creating art that is surrounding pagan gods, um, multiple gods, but Michelangelo was a devout Catholic. Um, his his faith grew, he grew more serious about his faith towards the end of his life, uh, but Michelangelo is uh, a reflection of Greco-Roman in his ideal um, and in his values of proportion and balance, symmetry, um, I'll probably talk mostly about the Sistine Chapel, but it's in the Sistine Chapel that we see, um, you know, the ideal male nude, similar to Doriferous, um, in proportion and size, height, etc. Um, we see an emphasis on uh, musculature. We see an emphasis on... Um, just how the body moves. Uh, Michelangelo cared about that. He cared about the natural state of man, but idealized. He wanted to, it to be godly. He wanted it to look like perfection. Um, very Greco-Roman. And in addition, Michelangelo surpassed them. I mean, he, he sculpted David with veins, um, with wrinkles. I mean, you can, you can see every aspect of David. Um, as you would see on any human. It's very real. Uh, when I went to Florence and you stand in front of David, um, you, you stand looking up at him. Uh, but if you were to look head on at David, you would actually find that some of his proportions are off. Um, his hands are larger than they should be. But Michelangelo knew that this this sculpture would be so large that people would be looking up at it. And so Michelangelo, the genius he is, knew to make the hands larger in proportion um, mm. so that the viewer actually saw it in proper proportion as they're supposed to if they are looking up to it. it he thought he thought ahead of himself. You know, he was, he was innovative. Um, and we look at the Sistine Chapel, it's, it's biblical figures, it's a fresco painting. Um, but Michelangelo didn't even view himself as a successful painter. He thought he of himself as a sculptor. Um, his first artistic endeavors were with marble, 
and the Pope commissioned him to paint the whole ceiling. And he's laying on his back on a scaffold, painting the entire thing. And um, it, it's it's remarkable. If if you ever go, it's remarkable. What are some of the major ways that he influenced arts into the future as you move out of the Renaissance really into the Baroque period and then the early Romantic mm-hmm. period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Michelangelo's probably greatest contribution um, is his inventiveness in studying figures. Anatomically, Michelangelo was a master. Uh, he knew anatomy he knew the the body um and and we we know this because he studied corpses mm-hmm. when he was a teenager he wanted to really understand anatomy and you look at the academies and even today still in art class you know mm-hmm. you're going to be drawing probably a nude model you're going to be studying anatomy great artists know the body um and can depict it well and i think michelangelo was the greatest master of this um, that had not been seen in Greco-Roman um, or even present time during his during his life, and so I think that was his greatest contribution his his ability to naturally depict the the body um, in a way that was so real um, and familiar to us, and yet it was idealized. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a really interesting thing. Um, I don't know if you know the story of Galileo. Uh, when he's, yeah, so, <laughs> no, I don't know what story you're talking about, there's a few, uh, but he's, uh, when he looked through his telescope, and he looked at the moon through the telescope for some of the first times, what he noticed on the moon was craters, and it was a very strange thing, he invited some of the uh, the Catholic uh, priests over to look through his telescope at the moon, and see that there were craters, and you can see them. You can see on the edge of the moon that it is not even and circular. It's actually sort of oblong, and it's cratered, like cratered. How in the world could this ideal celestial uh, object have these imperfections? Right. But you see that it has imperfections through this telescope. They didn't believe what they were seeing through the telescope. They thought that Galileo was doing some kind of trickery Mm. because their assumption based on Greco-Roman ideas was that all the celestial figures were perfect because they were ideal. And so like it took, for instance, Kepler a long time to figure out that orbits were elliptical because for a long time they just assumed they must be circular because a circle is perfect and an ellipse is oblong. And so I do think one of the ways that all these things intersect is that Michelangelo was a naturalist. Like you said, he's studying corpses. He's not studying math. Like Leonardo, he was studying math, but I'm saying he's, he's adopting his understanding of math to represent what he's seeing in front of him right. to a much greater a, a degree than he's adapting what he sees in front of him to conform to the math and right. the reason and the logic that he studied. So I think that too is sort of, he's shifted the trajectory of, Greco-Rom, of the Greco-Roman program more towards earthly human uh, endeavors. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that that reflects this scientific, technological, and societal movement away from the authority of religion. And you see it happening. And a lot of it has to do with this movement away from these abstract ideals Mm -hmm. into looking at, well, how are things really? How are things really? When I look at the moon 
through my telescope, I see craters. When I look at a corpse, I see wrinkles, I see veins, I see bumps, I see bruises, I see cuts. That's the way the world is. The world is broken. How do I, how do I draw people up to a higher elevation when all they see around them all the time is this death and brokenness? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not real. That's mm -hmm. not the way things really are. And um, we are still sitting with some of these things. Right. We are. Like, people are not comforted in our time, in a time that has been so fed on science and, uh, and humanism. Um, they're not comforted by, those, by abstract platitudes that aren't actually dealing with things as they see them. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, I think, as artists and as Christians to skate that balance or to find that balance between looking at things the way they, they actually are, but also recognizing that there is a movement, that there's a, a redemptive history, that God is drawing even through the brokenness into something that is whole, right. and that the wholeness of it may not be a humanly abstract mathematical perfection. Right. It might be something different and greater and more wonderful than we could even imagine. Right, right. Michelangelo does help us to have a glimpse of that. Yeah. The grandeur and the majesty that's there. Absolutely. At least a window, a little pinhole Absolutely. into that. Yeah. And one of the one of the things we could learn from him, which is odd, <laughs> is do what he did. Right. He studied the masters. He studied the masters. We can study him. Right. And he and yeah. he and he took it further. You know, he he was still true to himself. Michelangelo was not just mimicking Greco-Roman. He was an artist himself. He was innovative. He he was so masterful. I mean, David looks so real mm -hmm. when you look at him. I mean, it's it looks it's so real ingenious. And at the same time, it looks and so big. It's right, so, so right. It's so not real, and yet yeah. you're. I mean, his ability to craft it in such a precise manner is it's ingenious. It really is. Yeah. So we will go on from here to talk about how the Renaissance gave way to the Baroque period, because the Baroque period really is connected to this. Um, so the flowering of the Renaissance and also its destruction. We will finish up this episode with a song, again played by our friend Philip Hodges.
The piece you heard was an Italian Renaissance piece written for lute, arranged for guitar, the title of which, when translated into English, roughly means, If I become aware, my darling, of another lover.